Father, we thank you that we can gather together like this on a Sunday morning. Lord, we found out what it was like to not be able to do that in person. And so we just give you thanks that we can do this this morning. And Lord, will you just be with me as I teach from your scriptures? And all God's people said, amen, amen. Give a big stretch, right? Big stretch, yeah, good stuff. Nobody's doing it. That's good, you're learning. You okay, Steve? Are you? That's good. That's good. I think Scripture's going to talk to us today. And the reason why I think that is because that's exactly what Scripture is supposed to do, right? It's the living Word of God. And so we've been walking through the book of Genesis. And our whole intention actually has just been to do the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Because I, I believe that these 11 chapters really set the stage for how our whole life can be lived in the spirit or outside of the spirit. And especially in today's day and age, right, where everybody's angry, everybody's divided, everybody's an expert, everybody thinks they know. And in this day and age, we're actually seeing Genesis chapter 3 lived out even more than I think we've ever seen it in all of history. So, I want you to listen this morning, because we've gotten caught up in a lot of the nuances, a lot of the things in Genesis, you know, is it literal, is it not literal, like all these different scholarly nuances that happened in the book of Genesis, but I don't want to walk away without you actually capturing what Genesis chapter 1 to 11 is actually saying to our lives today. So, so you ready for this? We're going to open our Bible to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to get, uh, get moving. I'm going to start my timer so that it can be reasonable time. You got an hour or so? We're good. You guys are, seem like you're like, have you already eaten turkey? <laughs> like what's happening here, right? You, you know we're in the presence of God now and when we walk out this door and that should bring joy even in the midst of suffering. That's what scripture actually says. Right? So we just go through times of praise, but we need to live a life of worship. I'm going to get into that in a second. Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to begin today, and we're going to weave our way through to Genesis chapter 11. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over it. This is the introduction to the whole Bible. It sets the tone for where the Bible is going to go. And what it's saying is that God created the world by speaking it into existence. So that's the first thing that Genesis wants you to capture about the Bible itself, about the nature of God himself. He doesn't need war. He doesn't need all these different things that these different stories have given us throughout history about creation. He doesn't even need science. He doesn't need any of those things. He just speaks it. That's important to understand, folks. Our God speaks life into existence. 
Our God speaks matter into existence. Don't miss this. Genesis chapter 1, God speaks. If we jump to verse 27, we see him making humans. Adam, right? We talked about Adam, the word humankind is the word Adam in the Hebrew language. It's not actually gender specific until later on in chapter 3. It says, so God created, verse 27, mankind, there's the word Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. So God not only speaks everything into existence, but he created human beings very differently than all of the rest of creation. He created human beings to be made in his image, both male and female. Now again, a very different language when we put on our Eastern lens, our old lens, right? We can't think of this through the lens of today. We have to think of it through the lens of thousands of years ago. This creation story, these two things of God speaking and God creating human beings in his image are actually unheard of at this time. This would have been absolutely revolutionary in Near Eastern thinking. Then if we jump over to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, what does he do with the human beings? It says, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. There's our first mandate. The first thing that God has given us to do is to look after creation. And the Lord God commanded the man. So here, here is biblical freedom. Not the way we define freedom today, right? We define freedom like I get to do whatever I want to do. Nobody gets to tell me what to do. The problem is that's not how the Bible defines freedom. The Bible defines freedom with boundaries. And God is about to give us the first boundary. And it says, the Lord God commanded the man. So didn't recommend it. Didn't say, think about this. Ponder it for a while and decide whether you're going to do it. He's commanding it of him. And he says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The introduction of death is about to happen if humankind makes the choice to believe the lie. That's our reality, folks. That's our reality. And every one of you, including me, is living by that lie. Every one of us. We're not free from that lie yet. Again, very different concept than Near Eastern mythology at the time. Why, why does God do this? Why does God put boundaries around our freedom? Well, it's actually really simple, folks. Is it really truly love if you don't have choice? Like if I just say to Carrie, Carrie, you must love me, I command you to, is that choice? And I'm not talking about North American style of love where it's all fluffy emotional feelings and things like that. I'm actually talking about the core of what love actually is. 
We needed these trees in the garden to experience a choice of choosing God's way or choosing our way. And God needed to give us that choice so that we could choose love or choose the opposite of love. Now, here's the result of the disobedience. Turn to chapter 3. Sorry, here's the disobedience, the big lie. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What's the big lie that's happening here? Did God really say that? Shouldn't you be a little suspicious that you're being lied to by God? Did God really say that? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. The serpent says you will certainly not die. God's duping you. God's God's almost kind of making fun of you. You will not die. If you eat this apple, you won't die. And the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so if if you choose to live in obedience to God, God's holding something back. He's holding knowledge back from you. And you, you, you want that knowledge, right? You want these things. This is the lie that we still live in today. Now, I'm not going to give it up to you, but as we unpack all of this, we're going to land in chapter 11, and it is really going to show us just how badly we're living by this lie. So Cain and Abel then are born. We're cast out of the, out of the garden, and we have this pattern that we see in Scripture about moving eastwardly. Has anybody gone through the Old Testament since I've been teaching on this? And please, somebody put up your hand right? And looking for the eastwardly movement and then looking for the moments where there's a western, west movement and, and the, the nuances that are happening there. East is away from God. West is moving back closer to God again. That's a whole Old Testament motif that we see constantly happening in the narrative, even outside of Genesis. It's through the whole Old Testament. And so Cain and Abel are born, the first two children, and they're born east of the garden. We're no longer in perfect commune with God. We're no longer living in obedience with God in his presence. That's the way he created things originally. And now we're moving eastwardly away from the garden. It's interesting, too, because in the Genesis narrative, I mentioned this earlier when I was teaching this, we don't die right away, do we? And isn't that indicative to to the human way? Like we do all kinds of stuff that will kill us eventually, but because it's not killing us now, we just don't believe it. (laughs) Right? Like like think about, (laughs) I don't know if any of you smoke. If you do, like I'm not judging you or anything like that. But like we print pictures on the packages that tell us what the future entails. And we did, we're just like, eh. Right? Like, isn't that the human way? So when Adam and Eve eat the apple, it's like, right? 
I didn't die. I didn't die. So the, the lie must be true because it didn't happen instantly, but we know that it introduced death. And so now we're going to see the results of that. And the result actually in the text is less about the fall of man. That language isn't even used in the biblical language at all. It's more about disobedience or obedience. And so Cain and Abel begin to bring sacrifice to please God, which is interesting because the book of Leviticus has not been written. None of that has even been introduced. So where did this even come from? Listen to Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. It said, Then the Lord, this is a conversation God has with Cain. It's important. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? Folks, why are we so angry? The falls happened. Cain, his sacrifice doesn't get accepted by God. And the result of that is anger. And God says to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The advice that God's giving very quickly here is that if you learn to do what's right, That will bring you joy and happiness. That will please the Lord. But if you choose to live in religion, if you choose to do things your way, if you choose to believe the lie, that leads to sin, and sin leads to disobedience, and disobedience equals anger. How many people know really religious people tend to be really angry? Just look at history and all the wars and all the bloodshed and all the things that religion itself has caused. So if you're angry in the midst of today, take a step back and ask, why am I so angry? Because that's not the disposition that God wants for us. That's not the disposition that he calls us to. So why am I so angry? And then it's interesting because he actually says that if you learn to do what's right, it pleases God and you'll be accepted. If you do what's wrong, then sin is crouching at the door. But interesting, we're only in Genesis chapter 4. We don't have Jesus. We don't have redemption yet. And he says, but you must rule over your sin. And so right away, this is one of the things that bothers me about Christianity today. We love to rest in the grace train, right? Like sin just overwhelms me. I can't help but sin. And we define sin in all kinds of different ways. Like we label it specific things. Like if you do this, you're sinning. Like somehow if you do this, you're not. But yet in scripture, sin is something that we're born into. Sin is actually the way that we literally think all the time. Sin is the way that Cain thinks. But God already gives this glimmer of grace and hope by saying, you can rule over it though. You can develop a self-awareness by learning what to do, what is right to do, that will take sin and rule over it. We don't even have Jesus yet. 
So Cain, here's that theme again, is sent where? East. He's sent eastward to establish his new life away from God. Now we have a story that we're going to skip a little bit. I'll read a little bit here and there uh, with it. Where humanity continues, this is where the story goes, continues to move away from God. Things get worse and worse and worse and worse. We're moving further eastward. And we're introduced to this man named Noah. Now, I'm not going to get into the Noah story because that would be a series in itself. But I do want to introduce you to Noah and then let you hear a conversation that Noah and God have. In Genesis chapter 6, starting at verse 9, it says, This is the account of Noah and his family. So picture the earth is ravaged with selfishness. He says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. God says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of, oh my goodness, my watch is freaking out. (laughs) It was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. All the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. God's done with humanity, but he finds one righteous man. This is one of the, we've already seen snippets of grace, in the text, but this is the one glaring piece of experiencing God's grace in the Old Testament. Because God's done, he's, this, this, this humanity thing is not going well, I need to wipe them off the face of the earth. The text actually reads like he's frustrated and he just like, I am done with this, but I've found one righteous man. Now, if you know anything about Noah, Noah doesn't actually always seem righteous. So that's an interesting theme to look through too. Because in the church, we, we view righteousness through specific actions, right? And we're, it's like, if you do these things, then you're righteous. If you do these things, then you're a sinner. That's a weird theology, folks. I don't understand where that comes from, other than the prosperity gospel. But uh, that's saturated in much of our thinking today. God brings a flood. And he does exactly what he said he was going to do. And the Noah story is a really interesting story. But it's the first time that God offers grace to to Noah. Now in Genesis chapter 9, let's jump ahead. Then God blessed Noah. So this is right after he's made a covenant with Noah that he's no longer, he's never going to do this again. He's never going to wipe out the face of the earth. Uh, If you read above in verse 22, he says, as long as the earth endures, that's an interesting statement. We're placed here to look after the earth. And then God says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. But see, if the world doesn't, if the earth doesn't endure, then it will cease. Did you catch that? 
And then he says, then God blessed Noah and his sons. This is super important in the text. This is what he tells them to do. So this is after the flood. Noah and his family are the only ones populating the earth right now. And he says, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. That's what the mandate he gave Noah. Let's jump over. Chapter 10, he gives us a big list that I'm not going to read because I can't pronounce most of the names. But these, these tribes that form, they do what God says to do. And then at least a thousand years passes by. It's a lot of time. We don't know how much time exactly, but it's a lot of time that passes by. It takes a bit of time to make this many babies, right? to develop these clans and to set themselves up. And so chapter 10, the table of nations gives us all these different nations that have scattered across the world. They've, they've, they've done what God asked them to do. And then we get to chapter 11, which is our passage for today, and everything shifts again. Do you see the, re- the Bible's super repetitive? It, it cycles through similar stories constantly, and we still live like the Israelites. We still do all the things that it cycles through. It's really interesting. So Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of uh, Babel, 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 Bibble, something along those lines. It says, now the whole world has had one language and a common speech as people moved, what way? Eastward. So the Bible's telling us something when it keeps bringing up this eastward movement. The people have this one language, this common speech, and they're moving further away from God. Okay? They found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone. So, so people continue to move eastwardly, but they use brick instead of using stone. It says this on purpose, folks, because God has given them, provided them with stone, but what they're doing is they're taking what God provides them with and they're reinventing it and making it better for themselves. Did you see that in the text, right? So they used brick instead of stone. It's... it's highlighting that for a reason. They use brick instead of stone. Some of us read that and we're like, well, that's just good building practice. That just makes sense. Except up until this time, they've built with the stone that God provided them. But now they know better than God. They can remake something better than how God created it in the first place. It's the beginning of self-sufficiency. That's that's what we're seeing in this text, the beginning of self-sufficiency. Listen to what it says. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for who? Ourselves. So that we can make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Wait a minute. Chapter 9, verse 1, God commanded them to do what? Scatter across the face of the earth. 
And now they're building a tower with man-made bricks, new innovation, and they're going to build it so that they can become known so that they don't have to scatter. So that they don't have to scatter. They want to make a name for themselves because they want to get comfortable in one place. They want to stay put. They want to develop roots. Scattering is a pain. But the Lord came down to see the city. There's theories about this tower. Were they building up in order to reach God? Or were they building a tower so that God could come down to see them? Scholars argue and debate about this. I'm like, who cares? Either way, they're building the tower. They're like trying to, in essence, control how they connect with God, aren't they? You know how I've said, I think for seven years since I came here, that control is the number one factor that leads to sin? Isn't this exactly what we're seeing in this text, this need to control our access to God, this need to control the way we build, the way we settle, right? We want to settle in. We want to be comfortable. Life should be good. This is how we define a good life. Well, God comes down, and the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. So let us, there's the Trinity, and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So what does God do? So the Lord scattered them, which is what he asked them to do in the first place. Scattered them uh, from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. We love comfort, don't we? We don't like it when God scatters us. We don't like it when, you know, there's trials and tribulations in life. So many people will call me and say, why is God so absent in my life right now? And I'm like, why do you think God's absent in your life? Well, because things aren't going so well. And my answer is, is God is probably more present in your life than he's ever been because things aren't going so well. See, we've got that prosperity gospel thing happening in our mind, right? That if God's present, all things are awesome. But that's not how the Bible reads, folks. So, so instead, we... We make our own bricks. We become self-sufficient and we want to settle in. We want to like grow up in the same house and heaven forbid we move, right? Everybody's like, what are you talking about? That's not a sin. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. The sin of comfort, though, I really believe is. I actually think that the New Testament especially calls us to live an uncomfortable life that is constantly challenged by God. Because the people are relying on their own abilities instead of placing their trust in God. And right from the beginning of the text in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, all God God asks us to do is trust him. And the big lie causes us to doubt. And that's what we've been living under. Self-sufficiency. 
a way for us to control how all of this works. Then we birth religion. Religion, the two main things that come with religion is that God is distant. And I somehow, through my religious acts, will bridge the gap so that I can reach God. It's our tower. The entire first 11 chapters of Genesis show us some of the most important things that God wants in our lives. And it's not offerings. It's not religion. It's not showing him how sufficient we are at building things or taking life into our own hands. God is simply calling us to trust him, to live our lives in his presence, which is with us always. But humanity, and we're human beings, most of us, maybe not everybody, humanity has decided to live with God at a distance. And we think that religion can bring us back. And it just doesn't. It just doesn't. Can I, can I ask you a, a really simple question? What about your life, what about your life solely relies on God? So when you wake up in the morning, what are you not able to do without God? It's a bit of a thought-provoking question, isn't it? Because I could give you my answer. I can do most things without God. I can do most things with, without God. And that's how we as humanity go about living our lives. We do most things without God at the center of them. We make our own bricks. We build our own towers. We refuse to scatter. We refuse to grow. We do this in the Christian church. We call discipleship like a small group and we'll just stay that way. Right? Only invite some people in and we'll do religious practices and, and things like that. And, and we make excuses because if our church isn't growing, we're like, yeah, but we're deep disciples. That's why it's not growing. That is impossible. According to the Bible, if you're deep disciples, growth happens because you can't help but scatter and tell the world. Do you know why mission exists? Do you know why evangelism or whatever we want to use for that word exists? Because of the lack of worship in this world. Do you know what worship is? Trusting God. It's not a rock band. It's not any of that stuff. Worship is your whole life. It's those moments in your life where you can only survive with God running things. I've shared with you guys a, a long time ago, I had a, a bad truck accident when I was driving truck and making a living that way. And I had to rely on insurance who didn't want to pay, right? Because they don't like to pay. No offense if you're an insurance broker, but how does insurance make money? They collect it and they don't pay it. It doesn't take rocket science to figure that out. And so our family was left without any income for over a year as we paid lawyers to fight uh, the insurance company for somebody that hit me head on in my lane when I was minding my own business. And I'm a fixer. Like, I like to have solutions, right? I'm a, a solution person. I'm going to fix this dilemma. My family has no money. 
I'm the provider for the family, and so I'm going to fix this. And it just got worse and worse and worse. It didn't matter how much I tried to work and do different things and do all of these different things. The more that I tried to take control of the situation, the worse the situation got, the more depressed I got. And I remember being out back. We lived on a farm, and I was out back with my black lab, and, uh, and me and her were, she was running, I was standing, because as you can see, I don't do a lot of running. And, and it just, the, the spirit really just kind of came upon me and was like, Jeff, when are you going to let me lead you? When are you going to let me take over so that things will be okay? It's, it's the most vulnerable moment, I think, in my entire life where I didn't know what to do. I had no solutions. I had nothing. It was the moment that I had to give all of it up to God. And so now my life needed to rely on God, not on Jeff McLeod's competencies. And I'd like to tell you that the story turned around and I became a rich millionaire, but that's not true either. But what I can tell you is that a peace and a joy came over me from that moment. And we were able to, as a family, because when dad has peace and joy, it affects the rest of the family. And so this peace and joy comes over me in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the suffering, because now I'm living life with God at the center of it because I can't control it anymore. And that, folks, is exactly how God wants us to wake up every morning completely solely relying on him and trusting him, not building our own bricks. What's happening in Babel is they are building their own kingdom instead of resting in God's kingdom. God wants to be their king, and they choose to be their own king. Let's talk about Jesus. God has been calling us to live in his kingdom as our king. And what does Jesus call us to? To live in his kingdom, to reestablish God's kingdom here on earth. And so again, we've got this choice. We can choose to live our life obedient to God with him as our king, or we can choose to live our life making our own bricks and mortar and trying to not take what God provides because that might, you know, it's just not enough. We need more. And to remake it into our own kingdom. We see this through the entire Old Testament. The kingdom of humanity versus the kingdom of God. Israel's sacrificial system is God's way of trying to pull them back into his kingdom. But what do they do? They turn to other gods. We keep building towers. When the spies were sent into the promised land, you know this story? Many of you would know this story. What do they see? They go into the promised land. They go into the cities. And what is it that creates the awe, the fear? They see towers built to the heavens. Humanity continues to become more and more self-sufficient. We don't need God to live and be fruitful. We can do it on our own. And so then inserts Jesus, 
God has to come down again. Do you see this? First 11 chapters of Genesis are the gospel. They're the gospel in the book of Genesis where God has to come down again. And he calls us back into his kingdom. When Jesus is explaining to the people not to worry, listen to what he says, Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. I've read this verse to you guys lots. I'm not sure we hear it. This is Jesus speaking, calling us back to living under the lordship of God. So this is how I need you to live your life. This is how you find out how to do what's right. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What do we spend all our time doing? Worrying. Worry and worry and worry. Now, I'm not saying that life will be absent of worry when you accept Jesus Christ into your life. It won't. But there's something about worry distinctly that Jesus wants to address in our lives, and he does address with his death and his resurrection. So he says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about about your body. I don't worry about my body. What you'll wear. That was funny. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stone or sorry, store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Think think about all of humanity right now. <laughs> right? Like look in someone's garage. Like how many have you ever driven around to see how many people can't park their car in their garage? Right? Like, so, you know, we don't store up things for ourselves. We don't hoard things. We don't, we're like, no, 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 no. There's, then there's the disorder of hoarding. And so, you know, I'm not like that. Do you see how we're living the lie and believing the lie? It's so subtle and it's so prevalent in our lives. He says, Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you be, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Most clinicians would say that worry and stress will actually take away from hours of your life rather than add it. Jesus seems to know that. And he says, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the fields, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Listen to what he says now. You of little faith. What is faith? Simple way to define faith. Trust. That's all God's doing in the entire Bible is just calling us to trust him. Trust me. I spoke everything into existence. I created all things. Just trust me. But instead we worry because we're too busy building our kingdoms instead of resting in his kingdom. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear This is a great line. For the pagans run after all these things. 
what is it about the Christian church today that's any different than the world? How are we putting our trust and resting in Jesus in any way that's any different than the world today? When you wake up in the morning, how do you live your life? Is it fully in obedience to God, trusting in him in all things, resting in him? Or are we just like the pagans who don't know any better? But seek first. Jesus gives us the answer, folks. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. If we're going to say the Bible says, that's one of the verses we should quote. Not ones that tear people down. Not ones that make us seem more righteous than another. Because whenever you do that, you're actually being more sinful than the other. We see that, right? Genesis chapter 1 to 11. Show us why life is the way that it is. But it also points us to a different way. It's because we choose to build our kingdoms instead of living with God close to us. We live like he's far away. We still don't know how to do what is right. Instead, we do what sin causes us to do. We live life centered on self and our own self-sufficiencies. Yet, scripture from cover to cover calls us to live differently. And I think that 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 avenue to living differently, if you're already a Christian, if you've accepted Christ uh, as your Lord and Savior, I think you're not fully understanding what you say when you accept Christ as your king. It's not like today's world where no one can tell me what to do. It's not like today's world where there's no such thing as an expert. God is the king over all, and what he dictates and says is what goes. But in our world today, we're not okay with that. We can't trust that. Instead, we want our own self-sufficiencies. So we actually are living like God's far away. We want to live an independent life and choose God in certain moments. But we don't want to rest in God's presence in every moment. Folks, notice God in the little things of your life. And start on a weekend like this, Thanksgiving. Instead of us complaining about stuff, instead of us just being angry because we're actually religious and we don't want to admit it, couldn't we just take a step back, surrender our lives to him, and just begin to be thankful for all things? To be thankful for even the crappy things. Anybody here keep a gratitude journal? Because everyone should. Everyone should, because it helps reorient the way that you think. When you just take a step back and you write down, God, these are the things I'm grateful for. But dig a little deeper. Dig into your heart, not just your mind. Don't say, God, I'm grateful because I breathed today. We're all grateful for that. 
What are you really grateful for? How have you noticed God in your life? How can you begin to live your life in God's presence compared to God being distant? The worship team can join me up here. All I'm saying, folks, is chapters 1 to 11, they show us what life can be like, and they show us the reality of what life is like, and then it calls us back into the possibility of a reality that's different than our current reality. And Jesus brings the grace But God is already offering grace back to Noah. And grace alone, the fact that we don't have to do this on our own, that we don't have to white-knuckle our faith in order to live an obedient life, that's ridiculous, folks. That's religion. Religion says try harder, do more to earn your way to God. But faith says, I surrender myself to you and I trust you. And I take whatever's thrown at me. The grace of God should motivate worship. If anything else, if nothing else motivates worship, the grace of God should motivate worship. Because if it was not for the grace that we receive through Jesus Christ, I would not be okay. Because no religion's going to make me right with God. No trying harder, working more, serving more, doing more is going to make me right with God. It is purely only possible through the grace of Jesus Christ. And so this weekend, receive that grace and begin to live under that grace. Don't build your tower. Don't build your kingdom. Just rest in his grace. Why do we think we need to be so busy? Maybe busyness is our problem. When scripture calls us to rest in 